Hello and welcome to this week's Scottish Independence podcast from the Indie Life podcast team. I'm Fiona McGregor. Marlene Halliday and I will be looking at the topic of land justice. This is to tie in with the Scottish Government's consultation on land reform. We're looking at a couple of case studies, tap into some expert opinion and we go on location. Hope you find this really interesting. Enjoy. I don't know about you, Fiona, but you know I can be driving around Scotland and I turn round a bend or sort of come up the brow of a hill and sort of the landscape opens out. And I can be almost in tears, you know. And it's not sentimentality; it's it's just sort of this kind of deeply felt sense of connection and and almost like belonging to the land in Scotland. I'm sure I'm not the only person that feels like that. So you know, we've got this really yeah deep seated sense of connection to the land itself, and yet. Half of it is owned by, what, 500 people? 500 people own more than half. And it was really interesting the way you said that then. You said you belong to the land. And really what the Land Reform Act is, who does the land belong to? But before that, you found another clip, which is um, Leslie Ruddock talking about land, isn't it? And I think that was from a, from one of the Commonweal um Panels. You can watch the whole thing of that well worth a watch if you have a look on Commonweal's website. We've just borrowed a couple of the key points to illustrate this programme where we thought they were particularly relevant. So let's start with Leslie. And this is Leslie talking about just that very human need to be on the land. And it maybe ties in with what you yeah. said about yeah. belonging to the land. Yeah. If you think about what we live for to a large extent, okay, a lot of our identity and the importance of our time is caught up in whatever employment we have, whatever paid work we're doing. An awful lot of really what kind of matters to us is the time we're able to choose to spend the way we want to with the people we love. And in Scotland, that is massively, massively constrained by the fact we cannot easily get onto land to have the little wooden huts that everyone else at our latitude has got. This may seem like small beer to many people, but that is part of the outcome of not having had the experience. There's a tremendous release by being able to physically leave the places that create stress of, of everyday life and just change your location and find some place in nature that is secure. And that means not a glamping thing that you kind of rent again, usually, you know, incredibly expensively and have to book in for. It's conditional. You can't bring pets. It costs more if you bring children. You can't bring your auntie because she feels like suddenly swinging by. This is not what other people experience at all. They experience a completely unconditional bit of living together in very low key, low impact ways. And it wasn't that there was some vast hutting conference done at some point between the two world wars with someone with a big hut's clipboard sitting there and ex explaining to everybody how to do it. It came naturally to everyone in a wooded environment. And you would have to say as well, in a normal wooded environment, not the kind of forestry plantation setup that really passes for woodland in Scotland. But if you've been so disassociated and so uh, diddled out of connections with land, jings, you'd be looking at it and saying, you know, there's people that don't have first homes anywhere. Why should I be worried about not having any kind of little button bin? Um, and yet, 
what is it we're actually living for? There's many things about Norway that will, will really be forceful for people who want to consider better ways to own and manage land. The shocking thing is that despite the fact that the Norwegians have had um, a diversity of land ownership, which should be practically the envy of any northern country for, for centuries, really, so that you'd think these guys have got knees in the breeze. You know, they're making it, man. They don't need many restrictions because they've already got diversity working its good positive uh, energies on their system. And yet they do have all sorts of restrictions, which seem to be just too mind-blowingly difficult to even consider here. And then and on top of all of that, they have the ability to disappear off to huts and they have one in every family pretty well. Um, of course, there's difficulties with all of that, but it's a measurement of the difficulty and what we're missing as people and families leisure it's too it sort of sounds like a leisure center it reminds me of smelly gym shoes and kind of lost badminton shuttle that's not what it is it's your life you know leisure is the main main bit of your life that you are are striving for that you can control that you can express yourself in and we're throwing it away because we can't have it every weekend we can't find the people that we'd like to be every freaking weekend and when you go around at our latitude, go west to Canada, America, go east to all the Nordics, go past there to all the Baltic states, you find that people have the ability to do that every weekend. And for us, you're lucky if you can manage to afford a two-week holiday in your own country once a year. It's difficult when you've been gr grown up in a culture that basically teaches you in a million tiny little constant ways that the stuff that you look at is to see and not touch. The conditionality of the way we live in our own country is like the way I remember the lounge that we had in Belfast that none of us were basically allowed to be in in public because it was meant for best. We, we had a large part of our house that was essentially somewhere that nobody could, could be normal in. Well, that's what Scotland has become for many of us. is like a blinking lounge. We are a diminished set of people simply because we haven't been able to stoke up that appetite for the same level of access to land and fun and ourselves. You don't get to see who yourself is unless you can bring the posse out somewhere and just relax. I think that does tie in with what I was describing earlier about deeply felt response to the land. But, but if you don't have the chance to go very often, then that sort of diminishes it, doesn't it? Yeah, I thought that was lovely, um, what she said, and, uh, and she has written a book about huts. Just search for huts, Leslie Riddick, and you'll find it. I think we're going to start with the case study, which is about the uh, island of Great Bernera. We're going to start at Holyrood. Since its re-establishment, this parliament has helped empower many communities uh, beginning to address centuries of injustice in the way that land has so often been gifted, sold and sometimes neglected. Around 57% of Scotland's rural land is in private hands uh, and I should say that many of these landowners work hard to develop their estates and engage reasonably with the communities who live and work in them. However, this is not the case uh, when the landlord turns out to be an absentee with no visible plans for the estate other than the extraction of money. The Land Reform Community Empowerment Act seeks to ensure that landowners uphold their responsibilities and 
particularly if they are not doing that, to provide a legal basis for communities to negotiate uh, a purchase of the land. Now, the island of Great Bernera has been connected by a short bridge to the west coast of Lewis since 1953. The construction of this bridge incidentally came about only after islanders threatened to create their own informal causeway by obtaining their own explosives. And the people of Bernera have a long history of having to battle for their own rights. In, the, in 1874, the Bernera riot, crofters resisted the forced evictions which their then landlord attempted as part uh, of the wider Highland clearances. Bernera's crofters eventually won their case against that landlord in court. In 1972, the islands of Great and Little Bernera were bought by Count Robin de la Lanne Mirrelles, a colourful man whose wartime exploits in the Balkans were said to have partly inspired the character of James Bond in his friend Ian Fleming's novels. His title as a count was bestowed, I understand, by the government of San Marino. All of which said, the count did lead a fairly simple life on the island, where I visited him a couple of times. He died in 2012, leaving the islands to his grandson in Germany, uh, Siran de la Lanne, but told islanders that they should have the first option on buying the island should it ever be put up for sale. In 2015, 85% of Bernera's residents voted in favour of a community buyout. The district valuer set a sales figure of £70,000, reflecting the island's status under crofting tenure. The family uh, of the owner considered this sum to be too low. And despite numerous efforts by islanders, including uh, some of whom visited uh, him in Germany in 2017, those negotiations got not very far. There was an intention to purchase through a combination of grants um, from various sources. But the Delilan family stalled, not naming a price at which they would be willing to sell. In 2020, the Trust began the process of pursuing a crofting community buyout, uh, and in March I contacted Bernard's landlord with a request to meet him to discuss the various barriers which the estate was by then reported to be putting in place, hampering local development and blocking legitimate transactions with tenants. After an initial agreement to meet, my office have followed up three further times to be told that there are currently no suitable dates for Mr De La Lanne and his father, um, but that they might get back in touch shortly. This is a tactic that I understand has been employed repeatedly um, regarding the island's buyout efforts, as well as with individual tenants. One Bernera crofter, Mr Neil Macaulay, has been seeking to exercise his own legal right to purchase his own croft for a number of years now. I'm told that rather than respond to any emails on this, Bernera's landlord has simply ignored him. Mr Macaulay's daughters want to move to Bernera with their young families and hope to build long-term homes on their father's croft. But they can't do this until their father is allowed to buy it, which generally requires the cooperation of the landlord, and the family's next step may involve the courts. Another constituent, Mr Ian Murdo MacDonald, had been hoping to retire to his family home in Bernera, but had, uh, had to put the property on the market instead to pay for his late mother's care home fees. For 18 months, Bernera Estate refused to agree to its formal decrofting to allow the sale uh, until Mr MacDonald uh, was prepared to cough up a completely arbitrary sum of £16,000, adding significant stress to an already difficult situation. This kind of sum might not mean very much to an absentee landlord, but it is impossible for most people to magic out of thin air, and this practice is unheard of, I should say, on other estates. 
My constituent stages ground and the landlord has now finally agreed to allow the sale to be finalised without this completely unjustifiable fee. However, unless something changes soon, Berner's population will continue to, to decline. The island school and shop have both closed in recent years, and while there are young families who want to move back to the area, the lack of scope for local development under the current owner means it is impossible to reverse the island's depopulation by building any new affordable housing. Presiding officer, Part 3 of the Land Reform Act provides for a hostile bid by a community. This route has never been taken, although it has been threatened previously, where landlords were seen to be particularly uncooperative. The owner of Bernera seems to be determined to paint himself into that corner. According to the um, Scottish Land Fund, private states in Scotland stay in the hands of the same families for an average of 122 years, and I sincerely hope this does not prove to be the case with Bernera. Presiding officer, the island of Bernera should belong to the people who live there and to those whose families have worked the land there and fished from the surrounding seas for generations. Morally and culturally, the land is, of course, already theirs. We must now continue to do all we can to support the Great Bernera Community Development Trust to successfully take legal ownership so that the island's community can begin to develop and to thrive once again. I really appreciated listening to, to Alistair there. I mean, I mean, as it happens, the last over the last uh, two or three years, I, I've spent at least one visit up on Lewis. I go up to to look after a friend's dogs, and there's this there's this beautiful beach at the very top end of Bernera called uh, Bolster that, that I take the dogs up to. Um, and you know, at the back of that beach, there's an Iron Age house, which has been, I was going to say renovated, that's not the word, right word, is it? Mm. Work's been done on it to kind of make it look like how it might look at the time. So it's like, you know, he, he was sort of saying the land should belong to the people, you know, who live there and who work there and who make their living there and they've done it for generations. They've done it for millennia. I mean, you can't blame them for having inherited it. But you can certainly blame them for not being willing to engage with the people who really who, who live up there and who, and who belong to it mm. in a way that he doesn't. So we're now we're going to move on to, I think it's one of the Labour MSPs, is that right? Yes, and we're going to follow it with the contribution from Ariane Burgess from the Greens, who has yet another angle to bring out. It's got cross-party support, but these were the, the two that I thought added most to what um, Alistair had already said. Land ownership remains one of the greatest injustices facing us in Scotland because ownership of Scotland's land remains heavily concentrated in the hands of a wealthy few at the expense of communities. Communities who, as Alistair Allen so poignantly put it, have a moral and cultural case for ownership of that land. And this couldn't be more clearly seen than on Great Burnera. After all, here is a local community which has found its aspiration to purchase land frustrated by Scotland's inadequate land laws. Despite residents seeking a sustainable and prosperous future through community land ownership, progress continues to be delayed by a lack of cooperation from the island's absentee landlord. And in the meantime, this same landlord continues to exploit what should be the community's land for his own gain by demanding significant payments from local crofters. Great Bernera is the prime example of what happens when Scotland's land laws fail to secure the public interest. 
This is what happens when a disinterested landowner is able to stifle the needs and aspirations of a local community. But the truth is, landlords can get away with this because Scotland's land laws favour their interests over those of local communities. Even after 20 years of devolution, our land laws lag far behind other European countries when it comes to protecting the public interest. In Scotland, it's left to communities with few resources to try to exercise complex legal rights in the face of a landowner seeking to frustrate their ambitions. And as things currently stand, the Scottish Government has no right to formally ask if a landowner is acting in or against the public interest. So that's why we urgently need radical and progressive reform of our land laws. Ministers must be given the power to intervene and ask the public interest questions that need to be asked. And they must also be able to require the compulsory sale of land when the public interest demands it. While the Scottish Government's commitment to bring forward a land reform bill is welcome, I'm worried that it will fail to deliver the radical change that's needed. So that's why I will be bringing forward a land justice bill later this year. I'm sure the Minister will remind us today that landowners have property rights and my bill will respect that, but my bill won't hide behind the timid interpretations of what those property rights might mean, which I fear are likely to emanate from government lawyers. I'd like to begin by recognising the huge efforts the Great Burner Community Development Trust have made to try and complete the sale of the, croft, of the crofting land. It's deeply disappointing that the landlord, an absentee landlord, is refusing to cooperatively engage with the community. For a rural community to be rendered dependent on what is a feudal landlord should be something of the past, and it's not reflective of the progressive Scotland that the Scottish Greens are striving for. I understand that the Burnera community has sought to use Crofting community right to buy powers, but it has been challenging given it is a complex and time-consuming process. Other communities across Scotland have instead made progress by reaching amicable agreements with the landlord to complete a buyout. Unfortunately, that has not been the case to date in Burnera. And I urge the landlord to work with the community in the spirit of goodwill. As Alistair Allen pointed out, this is not the first time in Burner's history that the crofters have fought for the right to own the land that they live and work on. In the 1870s, crofters' grazing land was reduced to a smaller and smaller proportion of the island to make way for sporting estates. The crofters upheld their end of the agreement, paying rents and working to improve the land, but it wasn't before long some agents of the landlord arrived with eviction notices. Following local arrests, some remaining crofters took it upon themselves to march to Stornoway to defend their rights and get a fair hearing. Unfortunately, more legal wrangling was to come, ending in a court case. But in 1874, the crofters were found to be not guilty of the charges against them, and eventually the case played a part in the first successful challenge of the 1886 Crofting Act. And so the Burner Islanders who marched that day took some of the first steps towards land reform in Scotland. Last week, I visited the Islanders on Egg to join them in celebrating 25 years since their successful community buyout of the island. And I couldn't help being struck 
by the amazing possibilities that can be achieved by a community that is in control of its land and resources. We gathered in their brand new community hub at the pier. This hub provides a fine tea room along with food and craft shops and an office space with stunning southerly sea views as well as being a considerable local economic driver. As part of the celebrations, I joined the Egg Electric Tour to learn about Egg's pioneering renewable electricity system, the first island to generate power from water through hydro, wind with turbines and the sun utilising a large solar array. And as they said, their electricity is now cheaper than electricity on the mainland. And along with electricity, the islanders also have a successful and growing forestry initiative. Great Bernara's residents want those same opportunities for generations of islanders to come. And it is a responsibility for all of us elected to this parliament to ensure that land reform acts work to support successful buyouts. Both of those contributions, you know, from Mercedes and Ariel, I just think it's really good and actually important to bring in the, the, the point about, you know, the moral and ethical aspect of, of land ownership and, you know, the way that that, that especially for Bernara, that certainly, you know, when you've got an owner who, who, who just ignores Mm. what people are trying to do and, and doesn't respond. Pretty, pretty bad. And then I, I quite liked it as well that Ariane brought, brought in the island of Egg. If you just get the local, you know, the ferry from Malig and, 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 and have a visit to Egg, you know, if you've got the chance to do it, it's great. And they've also got a very nice cafe. It's just stunningly beautiful and it's fantastic that it's the people who live there who now, they, they make the decisions for the island and where mm. it's going to head to and what they want for it and also what they don't want for it. That's sort of real local government, isn't it? Local, yeah. local government. Yes. And for our second case study, we're going to look at the very, very controversial planning application from Flamingo Land um, on Loch Lomond, or who would like to be on Loch Lomond. We're going to set the scene a little bit with another clip, um, again, from the Commonweal panel. And this time it's Leslie just talking a bit about national parks, you know, what are they for? Uh, and what happens in them? And who decides uh, who gets yeah. to, who gets on the national park boards and, and who doesn't? So she's just going to set the scene a little bit for us. Um, I'm just looking actually at a, a column I wrote about this a wee while, just a couple of years ago, maybe, when I discovered that an extraordinary clump of sort of uh, outdoor activists in Scotland that, that many folk will be, uh, you know, quite familiar with, Cameron McNeish, uh, the late Dick Balhari, the former MSP Dennis Canavan, Nick Kemp and Dave Morris, Nick Kemp who is one of the founders of Parks Watch. All those guys um, have applied to become board members of existing national park uh, boards and none of them reached the interview stage. Now you've got to wonder what's going on there. You can draw your own conclusions, these guys certainly have, but the way that our, our national parks are being run at the moment you would really think that, in fact, it might be time for a real 20th anniversary. It's now 21 years, I think, since the first. Uh, we've had them for a relatively short period of time because these kind of ideas were blocked once again by the landowners in the House of Lords, whilst uh, national parks in England kind of horsed on from 1949. But, I mean, really, what, how are our national parks being run and how are they trying to fulfil conservation objectives and all sorts of things. I mean, there's a lot of questions around that. Um, people will see that the, the long run, running row in Loch Lomond Park over the proposed flamingo land development, which everyone thought was over, is back. Um, 
And, and that part board stands accused of all sorts of secretive behaviour. Also, folk have complained about controlling visitors by camping restrictions that could actually breach the 2003 land, land reform access legislation. And instead of, of basically improving the supply of things like toilets, car parks, waters, basic necessities, they try to restrict people's access to the land and then make us the problem. Um, there's been a long-running rouse, if this kind of floats your boat, about just trying to use compost toilets in a lot of camping areas um, so that that's low cost. It doesn't uh, then fall foul of budget constraints on these, uh, these park boards. Um, and actually, unbelievably, uh, because the park boards just wouldn't provide the, these basic necessities, local people took the initiative to provide portaloos at Duck Bay and Arachar. It is freaking unbelievable. And meanwhile, in the Cairn Gorms, we've got this long-running funicular debate, which masks the fact that the whole mountain is underperforming because its ownership is split between Highlands and Islands Enterprise, which owns the top slopes, and Forestry Land Scotland, which owns the bottom. Uh, by all accounts from people who work, try to work there, these two entities don't speak or cooperate properly. And that's why there is unbelievably no footpath, ski or mountain bike, bike trails to the top, link the top and the lower slopes or beginner ski lifts to reach viable bits of snow. By contrast, the, the Nevis Range, Achmore, Wolf Tracks, these guys have all helped propel Scotland to the fore in European mountain bike provision, not in a national park. So that's just a sort of taster of the, the argument that's kind of going on in the background. You could throw in as well the fact that within the Cairngorms National Park, there seems to be no attempt whatsoever to try to rein in the excesses of, for example, the royal family. Um, and that that could well be while some of these guys were basically skipped over because they're just too hot to trot. Uh, the Cairngorms blasted heaths, ravaged land, endlessly burned as driven grouse moors. That's not what a national park's about, but that's what the national park lets happen in our name. So I'm not sure. <laughs> you know, it's a nice idea to go for yet another one. But until we actually get clear what national parks are for and what you expect to happen within them, um, I, I don't know about reproducing the model. Flamingoland have come back a second time. So Ross Greer has uh, brought a members business debate on the second application. So here's Ross to explain what the issues are this time around. This isn't the first day, uh, debate that I've brought on this issue uh, to Parliament. Three years ago, a planning application was submitted that attracted more discussion and interest than any other local issue in the West of Scotland in the six years that I've been an MSP. It's clear to me that it's so deeply emotive to people because of the importance of Loch Lomond to the communities who live there, to people across Scotland, and to those from further afield who have been fortunate enough to visit our world-famous national park. It is particularly important to many of my constituents and others across the Central Belt who may not live in Balloch themselves, but who are able to access everything Loch Lomond has to offer through the gateway that Balloch is. 40 minutes on the train from Glasgow and you will be in one of the most beautiful landscapes in the world. Flamingoland's first application back in 2018 and 2019 was riddled with problems. Their own environmental impact assessment made for particularly grim reading, speaking of, amongst other things, quote, damage to ancient woodland, pollution of standing and running water, red squirrel and otter fatalities, and a host of other environmental concerns, end quote. Iconic views were to be interrupted by a water park and hotel on the shoreline. The majority of the site would be handed over from public ownership under the control of Scottish Enterprise to the ownership of a private company based hundreds of miles away and whose profits certainly would not be reinvested in the local economy. 
60,000 objections were lodged, making Flamingoland the most unpopular planning application in Scottish history. Western Bartonshire Council formally opposed the plans, as did Rambler Scotland, the Woodland Trust and a number of other local groups. When National Park Planning Officers recommended refusal of the plans, Flamingoland saw the writing on the wall and pulled their application. We won, and I want to once again thank everyone who contributed to that victory, including members who are here for the debate this evening. During the campaign, local residents came together at a meeting to consider what Balloch and the wider area needed, what a positive alternative development would look like. The list of ideas suggested by residents included a municipal water sports centre, camping and motorhome facilities, a backpacker hostel, a forest school, a heritage centre, a museum and much more. There was significant interest in developments around ecotourism, affordability, educational benefit and recognising Balak as an accessible base for exploring both sides of the loch were also identified as priorities. But the exclusivity agreement between Flamingoland and Scottish Enterprise made it impossible to progress any of these alternatives. Despite their comprehensive rejection, Flamingoland are now back with another application, and it sounds eerily familiar. 127 self-catering lodges, a hotel, a water park, a monorail, brewery, and more. Our campaign has secured one important concession already, though. Most of the ancient woodland at Drumkinnon Woods has been removed entirely from the development, that would still form part of the site and be sold to Flamingoland, putting it at risk of future development. Flamingoland have previously told me directly that their plans weren't financially viable without development there in the ancient woodland. So it's easy to see why the community simply don't trust them as custodians of this very special location. And just under half a hectare of ancient woodland is still at direct risk from this application, which is one of the reasons why the Woodland Trust have joined us once again in objecting to Flamingoland's plans. The environmental impact assessment says that area of ancient woodland, about two-thirds the size of the pitch at Hamden, will be removed in the construction phase of the development. Loss of ancient woodland means permanent damage and is totally unacceptable when we are facing such a stark biodiversity and climate crisis, as the Scottish Government acknowledged earlier this week. The new team overseeing this application have made a number of other small improvements, like reducing the height of the hotel and the water park complex, and they have taken a more professional approach this time. Admittedly, though, the bar was set pretty low last time. I have not had any petulant insults about my age or apparent achievements from the Chief Executive. They have not threatened me with defamation action from quoting from their own environmental impact assessment. Their last attempt truly was the definition of a cowboy operation. Let us not be under any illusion about these apparent improvements, though. This new application is still utterly inappropriate, and the grounds for objection still stand. The scale of development is huge. It would have a drastic impact on a well-visited National Park location on the Loch Shore. Space used freely for leisure by local residents and visitors alike would become part of a branded development, meaning that non-paying uh, visitors would feel like second-class citizens behind those who could afford the premium to rent a lodge. In response to my raising these con access concerns with the First Minister, the developers issued a press release with an access pledge. But this pledge just reiterates their basic legal obligations and doesn't address the unavoidable restrictions which come when open space becomes a private holiday park. The whole development would be focused on Flamingoland's paying customers, to the detriment of those local residents and other visitors who just want to enjoy this accessible walkside location. Why else would the monorail link the restaurant with the upper floor of the water park? There is potential here to link the shore with the railway station, restoring a public transport link to the loch for people with lower mobility in particular. In practice, it will simply link two parts of, exclusive, of an exclusive resort with each other without wider community benefit. And most of the site would be handed over from public ownership into the hands of a private theme park operator based hundreds of miles away. 
local community have stood firm against the idea of land owned and looked after on their behalf being passed to a company who exists only to profit from it. As I mentioned a minute ago, residents' alternative ideas, which could not be progressed due to the exclusivity agreement, included a community development trust or community interest company model, so that any profits made by something like a local arts venue, for example, would be kept in the community. As we face a climate emergency, major new developments, especially in national parks, have a responsibility to play their part in tackling the crisis. That is clearly not the case with this development, which will bring in substantial additional traffic on local roads. The A82 up the west uh, side of the loch is infamous for congestion during tourist season as it is. That concern was key to Western Bartonshire Council's objection to the first application, and I would urge them to bear it in mind as they prepare a position on this new proposal, given that the scale of the development and the expected traffic levels remain the same. Balloch and the wider National Park need to see significant improvements in public transport, not doubling down on car-centric developments. A truly coordinated and easily accessible public transport and active travel plan is needed for all of Loch Lomond and the Trossachs National Park. I have been discussing a travel strategy with the Park Authority and others for a while now, and some progress has been made. There is now a National Park Journey Planner app, plans for shuttle buses are being actively worked on, and a sustainable travel and modal shift report is in progress, which would present a clearer picture of the barriers and the opportunities for reduction of car use within the park. I would welcome interest from the Government in working with the Park Authority and local councils to deliver a comprehensive transport master plan for the park. But it is not good enough for Flamingoland to simply stand by and expect public bodies to solve traffic problems that they would be creating. A development like this is incompatible with the park's own plans to contribute towards Scotland's climate targets. The Hospital Watch campaign have also raised their concerns with me about the pressure this could put on local services at the Vale Leaven Hospital, where long-standing capacity issues will be familiar to many members here. This is a serious concern, and I expect both the Council and the Park to take it into account. An overwhelming majority of my constituents are clear that they do not want a scar on the protected woodland, the riverbank and the lockshore. They do not object in principle to redeveloping Woodbank House, as we made clear last time. But they certainly do not want 127 lodges providing holidays that many local residents would struggle to afford, attracting thousands more cars and sending profits to a corporation based far from the local area. People are sick of Flamingoland's patronising and incorrect message that there is no alternative and that their plan is the only way to prevent misery and unemployment in the Vale of Leven, that the only choice is this resort or Balloch will be forever a neglected and derelict wasteland. We have more ambition for Balloch than they do. The community has other ideas, dozens of them. Those alternative proposals could provide sustainable and quality jobs, educational benefits and far more, while preserving the stunning natural beauty that makes Loch Lomond a global destination. In contrast, Flamingoland's plan is frankly boring, generic and expensive. It does nothing to enhance Balloch's position as a gateway to the National Park, it is not what we need to support the local economy and it is certainly not what we need to tackle the climate emergency. No real consideration has been given to the community or the local environment. I want to encourage members across all parties, as well as members of the public who are watching, to join me in lodging strong objections to these plans. The Government knows the strength of feeling about this development, both locally and nationally. People care deeply about Loch Lomond. They are proud of it, and they want to see it enhanced, not cheapened. Our campaign's commitment to save Loch Lomond is unwavering, and I ask everyone who feels the same to join us. Help us win this fight once again. Thank you. Fiona and I had a wee trip up to Balloch uh, the other week. I was sort of astounded. If you look at, you go up there and you've just got this open outlook to the loch, and you know, if it's if it's a nice day, you could see Ben Lomond and big expanse of water in front of you. And to think you know, that that well, actually, it won't be accessible. 
<laughs> flamingo lands there, or it's accessible if you pay to get in, I suppose. And then it's got these these big rides on it, and mm. yeah, monorail, you know, the chalets. I mean, I'm, I hope I'm saying something more than I wouldn't ever have a holiday at Flamingo Land. I'm, what I'm trying to say is, you know, when you've got scenery like that and a place like that that can really touch people, and um, you know, why would you put somewhere like as, as brash? Uh, Flamingo Land's brash, isn't it? It is, and if you have a look at the original Flamingo Land in Yorkshire, I mean, it is a theme park. I'm sure it's the great fun park. if you're if that's what you want. But how disrespectful! to put that in Loch Lomond. It's like, I, I was just trying to think, you know, imagine what the response would be if you went to America and said, we're going to have Flamingo Land right in the middle of the Grand Canyon. The planning application is being reconsidered. And again, we've got an opportunity to object. I know that Ross Greer and the Scottish Greens have put together a sort of objection letter, if you want to look at that, or just fill one in yourself and, and send it with your, yeah. your own thoughts could be very powerful. Yeah. It's not the only example of developers who have a go at getting planning permission. It gets toughed out and then a wee bit of time goes past and they come back again. I mean, the same things happened at the Govan Graving Docks in, in Glasgow. Mm -hmm. They're still trying to get it developed. Just don't really understand why we've got a system like that. If someone thought, OK, I got that wrong, let's make it work. It genuinely did. And it was a decent planning application. Well, of course, fair enough. I suppose it, it's just that uh, I happen to think this one is so awful that they should oh. never have got the chance to get them back a second time. However, absolutely. And I think when they're they're making let's call them promises that they won't disturb a bit of ancient woodland or they won't destroy this beach here, twenty years time when it's probably been sold on to who knows what consortiums. Who's yeah. to remember what they promised in order to get that land? It's something about how much do we value our land that we're willing to give it away to anybody who comes along. So that uh, gets us on to the uh, Scottish Gov consultation then. Mary McCallan, who is the minister responsible for it perhaps, has done a very short introduction to the consultation site. The Scottish Government has just launched an important consultation on our next land reform bill. This is a chance for you to have your say about the measures that we're proposing to include in the legislation. We want to see the benefits of land ownership and investment in land being shared fairly. So we're putting forward plans for changes that will affect how land is owned, bought, sold, managed and used. We're also looking for your ideas on a range of related issues, including, for example, how land is taxed. Our goal is that land should play a full part in bringing about a wealthier, fairer and greener Scotland. So look out for more information about the public consultation meetings we're planning to hold across the country over the summer. The consultation will run from 4th of July until 25th September, so please get involved. Thank you for listening and I'm looking forward to hearing from you. We're just going to run through the main points that are in the consultation, www.gov.scot. The bit you want is actually where it says consultations and that's where you get to put in your thoughts on the questions. And there aren't that many questions, they're quite straightforward. It's really just asking what do you think about this? There will be points applying to large-scale land holdings We'll come on to how a large-scale landholding is defined in a moment. There's a rights and responsibilities statement that they must comply with. 
they must produce management plans. Now, this is quite interesting because it means that they must be upfront about what their plans are for the land that they're responsible for. They should be letting people know if they're planning to develop something or change the use of something, then that should be made clear in their management plans. And then a very interesting, very new thing, if it's going to be bought or sold, there will be a public interest test, which we'll come on to again in a minute. Well, I, when I saw this in the meeting, I sort of thought, wow, is that not there already? So, it, you know, it just sort of struck me how, how much catching up is having to be done. Point two is that all land holdings, regardless of size, that are in receipt of land-based subsidy must be registered in the land register. Now, even this, you would think, surely, if, you, if we're paying money to them, you would have some kind of record of it. The one thing that Andy Whiteman, who was part of the discussion, his point was that, well, the biggest subsidy is agricultural payments that is excluded from this. There's a new land use tenancy, which I, I don't know, it didn't seem to apply to very many people this, but it's something to do with if you've got a tenancy, you can take out a different tenancy because you can do something different with the land. And then they're asking a question as well, that if you're a large scale landholding, should you be required to be registered in the UK or the EU for tax purposes before you can acquire the land? Again, that's, that's a really interesting one because first of all, at the moment, anybody from anywhere can just buy anything they like. And we've seen that in the kind of green layers issue that's already been raised. But the EU is an odd one because we're not currently in the EU. So it might be that the Scottish government is thinking we want to keep pace with the EU and we get why that would be the case. Yeah, maybe, um, they're, maybe they're thinking ahead. Yeah, thinking ahead. <laughs> so when but, we head back into the EU. Yeah, but Andy made the point that, well, places like Malta, for example, are in the EU, but don't have a very um, transparent tax system. So that actually could still be quite a loophole. Well, I suppose the point is, where they pay tax on it and at the moment they don't well we know I mean landowners sometimes have to pay tax in their own country on their Scottish land holding but I hope we haven't put anyone off who's who's watching and thought and thought they might go and fill it up actually it's it's very straightforward it is yeah so let's have a look in a bit more detail if you're a large-scale landholder now what is large-scale there's three bits of definition, but the one I think most people will understand, you can visualise best, is 3,000 hectares. 4,000 football pitches? Yes, because <laughs> apparently a football pitch, which the universal measurement that's always used, <laughs> is um, between 0.6 and 0.8 hectares. So using an average of 0.7 that's just over 4,000 football pitches. Wow. So that's quite big. Wow, that's I think. huge. Um, yeah. Very interesting point that was raised in the discussion was, well, what if you've got a thousand here, a thousand there, a thousand over there, a thousand over there, and it's in one piece, apparently, that's 3,000 in one parcel of land. So you could have substantially more than that. Okay. Say you've got what, a, a, an estate that's 4,000 hectares, the ownership of it is divided into two because you, you just create a company, it's dead easy, isn't it? you just create a company, half, one company owns half of it, which is 2,000 hectares and the other one holds, then, then you, wouldn't be, you wouldn't be subject to any of these. There's a couple of other definitions of size as well. One is land which accounts for more than a fixed percentage of a data zone. So like a, a, a local council would be a data zone or a, a town or I something. Guess. Yeah, yeah. yeah a or local a, authority ward, right. 
Yeah, yeah. Uh, or land that accounts for more than a specified minimum proportion of a permanently inhabited yeah. island. This is just an example uh, from the slides that we saw of a compulsory management plan. So, you know, there's your chunk of land and presumably there will be a bit of uh, more detail, maybe all the green bits of forest and the blue bits yeah. of water or whatever, but that you will have to make it clear what your, your plan is. And a lot of landowners will have these already, but on a voluntary basis, this yeah. puts it on a statutory footing. Now the public interest test, this is new, and this is to assess whether at the point of transfer, a risk would arise from the creation or continuation of a situation in which excessive power acts against the public interest. Power is the important point here. It's not just that you have this amount of land, it's the power that comes with it, especially when you've got people living on land that you own. If you are a large landholder and you want to sell some of it off, or if you're a large landowner and you will be buying some more to make it even bigger, or presumably also if you're currently a small yeah. landholder, but you want to buy enough that will take you into yeah. that bracket. It can be the buying as well as the selling that triggers the public interest. It's basically about when something's been transferred from one owner to another yeah. owner. The outcome could be that the sale proceeds yeah. because the public interest test is that no, everything's fine. It's okay, yeah. Or it could proceed but subject to conditions. And it could be that the land, in fact, has to be split into different lots. The land in whole or in part should first be offered to constituted community bodies within the area. So the question okay. then is about and how long do they get to, I suppose, first yeah. of all, consider yeah. it, but also raise the money. From memory, one of the questions in the consultation is about how long should they be given? And it was something like a couple of weeks. Certainly having been involved in community development trust, taking over, uh, in our case, our village hall, it took about a year. As a, as a new thing coming in, this does seem like it's a step forward at least, isn't it? Yes, it does. Absolutely. I think the, the main changes that attracted my attention was the bit about the compulsory land management plans, the public interest test. Yeah. But also the question that is being consulted on, they obviously haven't made a decision, but who is allowed to buy? Yeah. I mean, there was quite a lot of um, discussion on the consultation event itself where people got in about ownership of second homes, for example, and absentee landlords or overseas holding companies owning large chunks of the land. So I'm not sure that this actually gets underneath all of that. I've done the, the consultation as well. And no, I was quite critical of, of some things. But, and a bit of me thinks it's another step forward. I don't want to criticise them too much. Something's going to happen out of, and it will be an improvement on, on where we are. If we don't make our voices heard, well, hardly well, complain. Get onto the consultation website and you can give your views on every open consultation that's there. And you don't have to do the whole thing either. If you only feel very strongly about one question, just do that question. That's all you need to do. And it's yeah. all valuable. And it's all making us take part in our democracy, which I think yeah. is the most important. If, if you're really keen, I mean, I suppose like if, if I'm doing something like that and I, I don't sort of feel myself getting a bit really kind of engaged or hit up really about something or other, then I'll do what I can on the consultation. But, you know, I do try and then take a bit of time to write to my local MSP and just say, look, I've just done that consultation and I want to say some more about, you know, whatever, whatever it is. And, and that way it just kind of means that, you know, our ideas and our responses start to percolate through into 
a bit more closer into the, the, the people that we've we've voted in to, to run the country. Yeah. So The next bit we're going to hear is Robin McAlpine and perhaps typically for Robin he doesn't think they've gone far enough. <laughs> no and he doesn't think it's radical enough. The problem is that I'm not convinced that there's the will to actually make this happen effectively once things are in place. This legislation is all it's all really quite tame compared to what an actual land reformer would do if they were given the legislation. But that's not the worry. The worry for me is that once you set something up, how it's run is the decider about whether it works or whether it doesn't work. You can have the best car in the world, but if you don't know how to drive, it won't go anywhere. So let's just have a quick look at what that means with these various things. So land rights and responsibility statement. Right, once this legislation's passed, who's watching if those are enforced? Land management plans. Once, they, once this legislation's passed and we've all moved on to whatever's next, who's going to go through each land management plan and see if it's fit for purpose? And who's going to check to see if it's being complied with? Public interest tests. Are we really clear what this means? So it's hardly any estates in Scotland anyway. Most of them don't get sold. They're all owned by trusts, or a lot of them are family trusts. The trust keeps owning it. Just the board of the trust keeps moving as the beneficial owners go from generation to generation. Um, but more to the point, at one of the public meetings, someone asked if someone's a 4,000 hectare landowner and they break it up into two companies, break it up into two lots and have it owned by two different companies, can they sell one of the 2,000s? And they say, well, yeah, and that wouldn't be a public interest test. And they said, well, no. And then if they sell the other 2,000, well, same thing. Right, so that one's not exactly bulletproof. Um, the register of landowners ownership, that suddenly turned conditional. Uh, and then all sorts of other bits and pieces in this are all related to how well it's pursued afterwards. Likewise, the national parks. This is one of the big problems in Scotland is you get something established which looks like it's going to be good, the Scottish National Investment Bank, and then it's just stuffed with cronies. And it does completely the opposite of what it was originally set up to do. Um, and that's the same with the, 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 a lot of the buy-to-let stuff. We've got these powers. Will we use them? Will we really start to slow down the number of Airbnbs? Um, because if we really wanted to do that, there's all sorts of things we could do via tax. Second homes. Why did they get a discount in tax? Why aren't we doubling the tax on second homes since you've clearly got money to burn? But it's got to have the will to do it. When asked in one of the consultation meetings if the Sultan of whatever um, buys land in Scotland, can he just set up a registered company in Malta and buy it through that? And the correct answer to that is yes, he absolutely can. It's not exactly much of a limitation if you can use all these loopholes. So the thing about all of this is you need to see one of two things. You need to be seeing a set of actions put into legislation which will cause and compel change no matter what. So it's there. You have banned smoking in pubs. You can't do it anymore. You have reduced the um, alcohol limit uh, for driving, and if a policeman catches you, you will go to jail. These are permanent, unavoidable, structural changes that we make to the way our societies run through legislation. Legislation can do that, but lots of other kinds of legislation is what is generally called enabling legislation. It enables things to be done subsequently. What my difficulty is, and I'm asking, are they committed to doing these things um, such that I believe that if this is all legislation is all passed, over the next three, four years, they're really going to crack their head and make this happen. And I'm sorry, I'm looking in their eyes and I'm saying, this is about the least you could possibly have done. And so you're not convincing me that this is going to cause the transformation. So respond, keep up the pressure. 
and don't buy the idea that this is job done because it's not it's barely job started I sat in on that that uh, Commonweal meeting as well, and it, it, it seemed to me like there were there was two threads that came out of it. One was about is it radical enough? No, and how 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 it could go much further. That was one thread, and the the other thread that that I think came out of it was the need to bring in some sort of land tax, uh, some sort of way of producing revenue for the Scottish government from ownership of land. So we've mentioned before here that uh, you and I talked to Graham McCormick about his system that he's come up with for a uh, a land tax. That's just one way of one way of, of doing it. But you know, it does mean if you've got a big estate, you, you'd be paying tax on that um, that area of land, or or if you own um, a big chunk of Glasgow. And you're just waiting for it to fall more into ruin so you can develop it. In that you pay nothing on it at the moment, but you would be paying a considerable amount of money in tax. And a developer won't do that. They'll get rid of the land. If they don't see any sign of being able to use it, then they get rid of it. At that point, other people can come in and, and, and do something different with it. So we're now going to the next clip. And it's Robin again. And, and, and he's going to be talking about that, this whole side of things, a land tax. Um, we should make land something that you should use constructively by taxing it, such that if it's not used productively or you're not getting exemptions because you're doing, say, re rewilding or peat restoration, if you're just sitting on it, if you're a grouse moon and you're living off of subsidies, it should hurt you financially. So tax land and you will see land reform in Scotland. You will see land in Scotland reform itself. As a lot of people suddenly say, this isn't the financial free-for-all I thought it was. I can't just buy this, wait five years, sell it off again at five times stock market profits. And you would see tax start to do that. But the other one is, and we've, I should also say, again, in our land, the report that we did, we deliberately went over this. We tried to explain in some detail how the things that some people tell you are illegal are the same things that some people tell you don't work or whatever. They are, they are, they're not illegal and they all do work. And we do have almost all the powers that we need. The other one that I think is really important is just compulsory purchase. Compulsory sales orders are okay, but I think we've got to start saying, right, it's time to start buying up land as the public, breaking it up and selling it off as smaller plots. That, for my money, these are the only two powers, really, which I think will see any significant land reform during our generation. Local authorities have compulsory purchase powers, but they haven't got a lot of money. Despite the fact that a land tax would be a local government tax, they can't change their own tax systems. Local, local authorities can't do anything about it. I'm sure many of you have followed some of the community land buyouts. So, you know, the other, what power have you got? You've got the power of diligence. You've got the power of just plugging away and plugging away and plugging away at it. But as Leslie will tell you in two ticks, how many have we had? When was the last one? What size was it? What scale was it? And how much bloody money did they have to spend to a landowner to get it? So I kind of, I, I know I'm a bit of a broken record about this, but I'm a massive localist. But the problem in Scotland is it's really hard to be local when the entire national level policy environment is tipped against you. And with land, it's tipped against us. So I think before we start to think how much we can do locally, we've got to start putting pressure on nationally to see, give us the powers to do things locally, give us the ability to do things locally. But I don't want to see big monolithic centralised owners just because they're public. I want to see decentralised, localised control of land and local plans produced by local democratic entities which are got real vision and ideas for these things. So when I say the first step has to be national, 
I only mean so that all the rest of the steps can be local because that's where we want to get this. Uh, that's where we want to get this right. The other thing that that I think moves us into it's, it's a bit of a different theme, but definitely connected to all of this is how productive land is. And some years back, Commonwealth brought out uh, a uh, it was called the Grouse Moor Report, and a lot of data about how land is used. Grouse moors are inc incredibly unproductive because it's a vast amount of land. But yeah, it costs a lot if you want to go and shoot uh, birds on it. But th that doesn't bring in a lot per acre of land, not compared with other ways of using land. And the other thing is, it also doesn't provide a lot of jobs, although grouse moor owners and uh, supporters will say that it does produce jobs in, in those parts of the country, but not compared to other ways of using the land. Now, OK, you, you can also argue, well, a grouse moor is up on ha halfway up a mountain. What else is it going to be used for? Well, there are other things that it could be used for. If the owner of a grouse moor had to pay land tax, that would make them think a lot more carefully about how they use the land. And it might still end up being in their ownership, but they might have to think, mm, we have to start looking into forestry. We've got to start looking into energy. Maybe we put aside part of the land for uh, you know, wind turbines or hydro. So it would just bring a different kind of thinking into it because it's costing them money to use the land the way they are at the moment in a not very productive way. So I, I know it's a whole different theme, maybe. Maybe we come back to another programme. But these things are all joined up. We can put the link to that paper yeah. at the, in the notes yeah. as well, if anybody would yeah. like to see it. Yeah. Maybe do one of our famous blogs about it, who knows. <laughs> <laughs> so now we'll leave it to Leslie to summarise what she thinks the way forward is and uh, how all these fragmented bits could be joined up. The question of land reform, so many things are actually in different, under different remits. And in fact, I, I got a, I think it was an event I'd helped organise so that Andrew Thin actually got back in touch with me after it. Um, he was in the, that last event and said that um, what I'm taking away from this is that um, people want to address a number of issues that don't fall under the remit of the land reform minister, viz tax, compulsory sale orders, housing, etc. I wonder if what we need to do in the meantime is say, well, okay, we would like a presentation of everything that is to do with what we understand to be the land problem of Scotland, put forward by all the various ministers that have got that are working away on something, so we can see the breadth or lack of it of what your government is doing, because all we see peeping over the top is this very timid proposal that can't talk about the big issues half your audience wants to engage on, which is basically tax. That has come to the end of the programme. As you know, we have a podcast that's out every Friday and we do two YouTube shows a month, this being one of them. So next time you see us, it'll be our next Indie Jigsaw show. But next yeah. time you'll hear us, will be the podcast. Yeah. yeah. Thanks for watching. Bye. You've been listening to the Scottish Independence Podcast from the Indie Live Podcast team. Don't forget to subscribe. Come back every Friday for more podcast content. You can get all our previous episodes on our website, podcast.independencelive.net. Thanks for listening. Bye now. <laughs>